Okay, find Joshua chapter 9. We'll read the, um, <clears throat> the whole chapter. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, that's Jericho and Ai, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Great Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. I.e. we've come from outside of Canaan, different land altogether. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then? Can we make a treaty with you? Let me just clear up one uh, potential. Um, it says that they, it's the people of Gibeon. And here it says they're Hivites. Not Gibeonites, they're Hivites. Now, clear that up um, immediately. Because um, it's in chapter 11 that we discover. In fact, I'll just read chapter 11 and verse 19 for you. Um, and it, it says this. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites. So what you've got is that um, a number of the Hivites were living in the Gibeonite area, and it's the Hivites who are doing this. Not the Gibeonites, but the Hivites. But the Hivites live in Gibeon. All right, so just clear that potential contradiction up. <coughs> We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you, but now see how dry and mouldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. 
The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Um, oh, I've got some uh, Yes. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near them. So the Israelites set out on the third day and came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, <clears throat> Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you, while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. That is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Um, <clears throat> now what you've basically got here is that uh, Israel is under orders from the Lord to go into Canaan and to systematically drive out and destroy all the nations. Now what happens here is that some of the Gibeonites, the Hivites amongst them, in the same way that you might have um, an ethnic community in this country, they might be Indian or Pakistani, um, African, and yet they're British as well. And that's, that's what you've got here. That's why they're Gibeonites and Hivites at the same time. So what's happening is the Hivites who live in Gibeon um, decide that their only escape, uh, because they know what God has done, their only escape is to um, lead Joshua and the Israelites on into believing that they're actually from another nation outside of Canaan completely. And any nation outside of Canaan, Joshua was quite free to make a treaty with. But he was not free to make a treaty with any of the Canaanite nations. Uh, he was duty-bound before the Lord to destroy them. And so what happens is the Gibeonites, they dress up in really old clothes, they get manky food, uh, and you know, so it looks like they've been travelling for months uh, trying to find the people of God so that they can serve the Lord God of Israel. 
And uh, so basically what we've got here is the Gibeonite deception. And that's really what we're going to be looking at tonight. The aspect of spiritual warfare uh, where Satan works uh, by trying to deceive God's people. Um, now before we um, get to the main issue, just um, a couple of preliminary points. Um, <clears throat> and uh, in verse... Uh, let's see, in verse 24, uh, when the, um, the Gibeonites explain why they'd done this, and it was because they knew that they didn't have a chance. Uh, they knew that unless they could get Joshua to make a treaty with them, that they'd be destroyed, and that the Israelites would, uh, you know, sort of like drive them out because uh, God was with them. And, uh, and again, we see uh, this thing, and we've noted it before, that the Canaanites were terrified of Israel because the Canaanites knew that God was with them. Do you remember we saw when the spies went in to spy out Jericho and they came into Rahab's house? Rahab told them, I mean, there was Israel all kind of, oh, how are we going to beat, you know, beat Jericho? How are we going to defeat the Canaanites? And, um, and Rahab tells them that Jericho and all the Canaanites had, had been in fear of Israel right back to, you know, at the crossing of the Red Sea even before the wilderness wanderings. And uh, we've seen, haven't we, and we need to remind ourselves that Satan is more frightened of us than we are of him. He knows that God is with us. Um, and, you know, sort of like, you know, there are often times when, you know, maybe we feel defeated and, you know, sort of rather like Israel, wilderness wanderings, and then, you know, sort of maybe marching around Jericho thinking, oh, well, what on earth is going to happen here? But let's remind ourselves all the time that regardless of all that, Satan fears each one of us. And, uh, you know, and that basically one of the uh, aces that he, he, he plays is that if he can deceive us into acting as if we're frightened of him. Satan knows that he hasn't got a chance against a Christian who's following the Lord. That's why he works so desperately. You know, I mean, Satan is under our feet, period. But he tries to, def you know, sort of deceive us in into lying down and letting him jump all over us. The truth is, he is under our feet. And um, next time, uh, so this is a coming, you know, preview of coming attractions. We're going to look at what I call the, the change in the cosmic pecking order, um, because it was one thing before Jesus died. But when Jesus died on the cross, the pecking order of the universe changed. And um, you, 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 you had uh, God, you had the angelic realm, you had man, and then you had nature. Now, after Jesus died, a new pecking order emerged, and it was God, redeemed man, the angelic realm, unredeemed man, and nature. Now, we're redeemed man, which means we are over the angels. Satan is completely under our feet because of the death of Jesus. Well, be back to that next time. But it's good to just remind ourselves, here again we're seeing it, these Hivites uh, were terrified. They knew that they didn't have a chance because God was with them, uh, with Israel. And uh, Satan knows ultimately that he doesn't have a chance. And then a second thing worth noting as well, before we actually move on to the, the main thing of, of tonight, is uh, seeing that Joshua knew that... Uh, he couldn't break the treaty or the covenant he made with them 
even after he found out they deceived him, he wouldn't break his word. He discovered that he'd been tricked, but nevertheless he stood by the treaty that he'd made with them. And that's important as well, because it, it demonstrates to us that as Christians, more than anyone else, our word should be our bond. If you go to, to James, find James chapter 5. And in verse 12, he says, Above all my brothers, <clears throat> do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. And of course, one of the things that you often hear in the world is, uh, you know, sort of like, be it rather extreme forms like on my mother's grave, or people just saying honest. They've told you something, and they feel that they've got to underline it with some kind of oath, just so that you know that they really are telling the truth this time. Now, the reason that Christians don't need oaths, I mean, swearing an oath in court is slightly different, you know, if, if you're called into court by the law. But the point is that what James is talking about here is that you and I shouldn't ever need to have to say honest or, you know, sort of like, you know, no, I, I really am, you know, we sh our word alone should be enough. If I say yes, that means yes. There's no question I have to qualify it with anything else. I've given my word. If I say no, it's no, I've given my word. And the point is that as Christians, our word ought to be our bond. Christians ought to mean what they say. And we ought to say what we mean as well. Promises that we break, that's wrong. I mean, obviously, sometimes promises get broken because there's nothing you can do about it. I'll be round at 8 o'clock, and then the car breaks down at 10 to 8. Well, I mean, obviously, that's slightly different, but obviously you move heaven and earth to let the person know that, you know, you can't make it or whatever. But, but basically, we'll be very careful about, you know, sort of promising things. Isn't it easy to say, oh, I'll pray for you? Well, if you've said that, do it, you know. Um, if you go to 2 to, to Corinthians, to just look at a, a few scriptures on this point. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And what Paul's saying there, the nature of God is that he promises something. And what's the end result of it? The people end up saying, so be it, because he keeps the promise. That is God's nature, and that ought to reflect on ourselves as well. Uh, find chapter 7 and verse 1. And Paul says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Our Christian life is built on the promises that God has made us. 
And, and here Paul says, look, we've got the promises of God, therefore, in the light of that, be holy. Our whole Christian lives are built on the fact that God promises things and then he keeps his word. That must be the character, you know, a characteristic of every believer. If you go to 2 Peter, 2 Peter in chapter 1, And uh, in verse 3, Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And there we have it the very great and precious promises that God has made to us. We depend on them and bank on them entirely. That is what faith is. Now, the fundamental characteristic of, of God himself is that he's a God who gives his word and he keeps his word unfailingly and unerringly. Therefore, we ought to reflect that into our lives as well. So that we're not just people with words, but what we speak, we live. It's backed up. It's not just what we say, it's what we do. Our word represents our actions and our lives as well. And if you just go to 1 Corinthians 4, just see Paul talking about some people who weren't like that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and in verse... 19 and 20 he says um, I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking but what power they have for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk power and here you've got Christians in the Corinthian church causing trouble putting themselves up as leaders and you follow us will you know, will proclaim God's word to you. And Paul knows full well they're talkers, that's all they are. They've got the talk, but they haven't got the life. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, well, when I come, I'll find out whether they've got the life or whether it's just talk, because the kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. The point is our lives back up our words. And this is based on exactly the point that if I make a promise to someone, if I say I'm going to do something, well, it can't just be words. I've got to do it. It's got to be backed up. So our lives must be consistent with our words. And uh, one of the big problems um, in the Christian life, as we all know, can be, and as Robert Lee used to say, words, 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 wind. That's what Robert used to say. And uh, we've got to make sure that that isn't what we're like. That it's not just words, words, words. You know, that our word is our bond that what we say, we've got our lives that back it up so that people can see that it's actually truth rather than just words. Now, having done those two things, let's dive into the, you know, the, main, the, the main point of tonight and, and, and this story we have of Joshua. And um, it's the danger of deception. Uh, I mean, we, we see here from the beginning... Um, 
of chapter 9 that all, all the kings, all the Canaanite kings, now they're all getting ready, they're training their armies, they're getting everything together to attack Israel, to defend themselves against God's people. And Satan fights in different ways. His, his attack will come to us in different ways. But what we largely see here was the way that he came against Israel by deception. And this is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Satan deceives and deception is the danger. It was God's will that these people, these Hivites from Gibeon, be destroyed. That was God's express will. Now then, the thing about being deceived is that it's not directly a matter that Joshua didn't obey the Lord. Joshua understood that he was free to make treaties with nation other than Canaan. He knew that. What happens here is that some Canaanites who ought to have been destroyed by Joshua and the Israeli army, some Canaanites managed to get Joshua believing that they weren't Canaanites at all. And they tricked him. And that's the danger when Satan deceives us. It's when he gets us thinking we're being consistent with God's will when we're not being at all consistent with God's will. It's deception. And it is a danger for all of us. And uh, I mean, tonight we're going to have a little dippy-dippy about the kind of deceptions that Satan throws over us. But more importantly, we're going to see uh, our safety. You know, how, how do we stay safe from being deceived? And uh, But first of all, let's actually read um, verse 14. It says, look, the men of Israel sampled their provisions, i.e. these Hivites, but did not inquire of the Lord. Now, can, can you see that old laxness again? We saw this before Ai, didn't we? They didn't inquire of the Lord. They just set out and attacked Ai and they got marmalised. The danger again and again and again is that we get lax before the Lord. Because yesterday, Jericho may have been a great victory in the Lord. But tomorrow, Ai. And Joshua didn't inquire of the Lord about that and they got marmalised. Well, again, eventually they got right with God over that and they got AI and defeated it. Victory again, victory in the Lord. Now, the Hivites come along and Israel didn't inquire of the Lord. And down they go again. They get tricked by Satan. And so we've got to see how all the time we've got to make sure that we don't get lax in inquiring of the Lord. And what is inquiring of the Lord? It's prayer. It's maintaining that closeness with the Lord through prayer. And uh, this is one of our greatest weapons against Satan, and it's one of our great defences against Satan. It is prayer. It is inquiring of the Lord. It is crying out to the Lord. It is hanging on to him. It's all the time bringing everything to him so that we're involving him in every aspect of our lives. We must constantly and prayerfully guard against Satan deceiving us. If he can get out and out disobedience, that's great. Satan always initially goes to get us to sin. That's what he's always after. And 90% and 90, 90 of day-to-day -day spiritual warfare is temptation to sin. 
That is the victory Satan's after, to get us to sin, to get us to be out of fellowship with God. And that attack is always coming. But Satan never limits himself to one particular attack. You don't do that. He, there, there are different ways of doing it. So even whilst on the one level he's trying to get us to fall into sin, on another, you know, he, he, he creeps in like the hive lights in order to deceive us. And so we, we've got to, to, to get to know our enemy a bit here. If you go to Revelation 20, and let's just clarify something about Satan. It's basic, it's fundamental, but we need to remind ourselves of it. Revelation chapter 20 and in verse 3. Um, well, let's do verse 2. He sees the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss. This, this is Satan being thrown down into Tartarus by an angel for the thousand year reign of Jesus. Locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Go to um, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur. Back into Revelation chapter 12. And verse 9. It says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, deceives them, gets people going off of the right path. Going to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 11. And verse 3. And Paul says to them, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serp serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So, deceived led astray. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 the Spirit, i.e. the Holy Spirit, clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith so he's talking about Christians this is a warning to Christians will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons 
Now, can you see the fundamental thing about Satan in his nature? Yes, he's cruel, he's a murderer, he's all that, but he is above all else a deceiver. We see here that Paul actually defines demons, the angels who follow him, as deceiving spirits. It's in their very nature. And of course this shouldn't, you know, surprise us. We know that um, God the Father is, in John's Gospel, called the one true God. Jesus referred to himself as the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth, again in John's Gospel. Now, obviously, I mean, Satan is not the opposite of God in that he is his equal, you know, like the opposite of black is white. It's not like that. God has no opposite in that sense, because only God is uncreated God and all-powerful. But Satan is the opposite of God in the characteristics that God has in, in, in his nature. God is love. Satan hates. God is truth. Therefore, we find that Satan is a deceiver. He is the opposite. If you actually go to John 8, you see one of the things that Jesus said directly relating to this. John chapter 8 and verse 44. This is Jesus speaking to Jews um, who refused to believe in him. So this is uh, referring to unbelievers. And Jesus says, some would say tactlessly, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Because they wanted to kill Jesus. So Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning. So we see that Satan is full of hatred. He's a murderer. But Jesus goes on to say, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, that is what we must understand all the time about Satan and the evil spirit. In spiritual warfare, they are all the time trying to deceive us. And they're trying to deceive us with the end result that we will go astray, away from a pure devotion to Christ, away from the straight and narrow, abandoning the true faith by wandering off here and there after things that are false. They may look dressed up and all very Christian, but they're false and it takes us away from the Lord. So we've got to see that in regards to spiritual warfare, the whole time, we're coming up against the danger of Satan deceiving us. So we've seen, and I've got to put layer upon layer here, we've seen that when it comes to spiritual warfare, Satan and the evil spirits are deceivers. Well, I want to show you now that they're not the only deceivers. 
Because in the same way that God works through other people, so does Satan. So we've got to see that Satan and the demons are not the only deceivers. So we have another clutch of scriptures here. First of all, Ephesians chapter 4. We've seen that Satan and the demons are deceivers, but I want to show you that they're not the only ones. Ephesians 4 and verse 14. Paul says, and this is talking, urging them to grow up, to mature. He says, then we will be no longer infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. So there, Paul warns them, not against Satan and the demons, but he warns them against other people. Because God and Satan work through human beings. Uh, chapter 5, still in Ephesians, and verse 6. Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. He's talking about people there. He says, don't let people deceive you with empty words. Words, 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 again, as Robert would say. Go to the Colossians now. Chapter 2. Paul says, I tell you this, I, I'm giving you this Bible teaching. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fire-sounding arguments. He says, when you're talking to other people and deception comes through them, he says, I don't want you to be fooled by it. Regardless of their fine-sounding arguments, I want you to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. But again, he's warning them against the danger of being deceived by other people. Verse 8, still in Colossians 2, but verse 8 now. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now there, deceptive philosophy doesn't mean that have nothing to do with philosophy, but, ha you know, because philosophy can be good. He says deceptive. Stay, you know, make sure that uh, you're not taken captive by people with deceptive philosophy. Two Thessalonians. Chapter 2. And verse 3, he says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And he's talking there in the context of supposed letters from other apostles and things like that. He says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And then lastly, on this point, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and in verse 13,
and he says, uh, well, we'll read from verse 12, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, there's our second layer. We've seen that Satan and the evil spirits seek to deceive us. But now we see that the second layer is that often, not always, but this deception comes through other people. So this isn't just something to do with our individual spiritual warfare and resisting temptation and our own like personal prayer with the Lord. It's something that involves our relationship with other people as well. So we've seen Satan and the demons and we've seen other people. The danger of being deceived. But now we peel another layer of this onion away and uh, the key to it is the verse we just saw, that these evil men, they deceive, but they are themselves being deceived. So they deceive because they are themselves being deceived. And this is the real enemy. Now you thought, no, 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 sure, no, hang on, wait, this is spiritual warfare, this is serious, this is Joshua, this is... Satan's our real enemy, isn't he? No. And if we believe that the real enemy is Satan, he's going to get us. Because this third layer is the real enemy, and unless we understand this, we won't know where the battle is actually uh, got to be fought. Because your worst enemy is not Satan, and it's not other people, even ones who want to deceive you. Your own worst enemy is you. And my own worst enemy is not Satan, is not other people. My own worst enemy is me. And that is the thing that we've got to understand. We're talking about the danger of being deceived. We've seen that Satan and demons are going to try and deceive me. We've seen that other people may well try and deceive me. But the real enemy is actually, as far as I'm concerned, me. Because as a sinful human being, I have the whole time a leaning towards deceiving myself. Go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17. Because what we've got to realise is that thus far we've been talking about Satan and the demons, rotten sinners they are. We've been talking about other people. Well, of course, yes, other people are rotten sinners, aren't they? What we've got to realise now is that I'm a rotten sinner. The evil, the untruth, the deception out there is also in my own heart. And Jeremiah 17, verse 9, and look what he says. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it you don't cure the old heart we get a new heart we get jesus's heart but there you have it the heart is deceitful above all things this is why deception is such a danger to us because our hearts are deceitful our hearts are deceptive we are naturally deceitful 
And here's the point, we deceive ourselves as well as at certain times deceiving others and even trying to deceive the Lord. Let's see this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 18 Paul says to them do not deceive yourselves if any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age he should become a fool so that he may become wise pride we deceive ourselves see because of pride in our hearts and Paul's saying you know what you, you think you're wise good bloke yeah real real, real sold out of a little believer hmm don't deceive yourself you're a sinner saved by grace here's Paul saying to them look don't deceive yourselves go to Titus again find chapter 3 and verse 3 Paul says at one time we too were foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures it's natural to us to be deceived and then back to Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 22 he says you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self he's saying put on the new self he says you were taught to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and our sinful natures are still being corrupted by their sinful desires. And we've got to all the time make sure that we're not being deceived. Deceitfulness is in our very nature. And of course that's the reason why deception is such a danger for it, uh, for us. And that's why that we are natural candidates for Satan to actually deceive us. And it's because we have deceitful hearts ourselves. And so therefore, we can't think of the danger of being deceived as something that happens maybe, well, I mean, Christians who don't know the Bible very well, they haven't had much teaching, or maybe immature believers. This is a danger for each one of us, no matter how well we know the Bible, no matter how mature we are in the Lord, no matter how long we've been following the Lord, the danger of being deceived is with us all the time. And the deceptions that we fall into it are just often that we deceive ourselves. I mean, if Satan can get us deceived about really major things, that's, that's, that's great. Get us going off after all kinds of, you know, cloud cuckoo land things or whatever. But often it's, it's, it's just the things that we deceive ourselves about. And it, it's worth just actually having a look at what some of these things are. If you go to, to 1 John, and remember again that 90% that of spiritual warfare is, 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 is daily resisting Satan's temptations in whatever form they might come. 
And in 1 John 1, verse 8, John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, there's an area where it's so easy, so natural for us to, to deceive ourselves. Not necessarily, you know, sort of saying, well, I don't sin anymore. I mean, there are Christians who actually believe that. But it doesn't have to be that blatant. So often it can just be that one sin that we don't want to confess. That one sin that we're trying to say isn't a sin. We know it is really. We're deceiving ourselves. We're making out it's not. Can you see the danger there? Go to Galatians. So there's one deception, you know, sort of like calling sin something other than sin. Galatians chapter 6, see another, another sort here. Verse 3. Paul says, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And in the terms of what Paul's saying there, believe we are nothing. I mean, we're everything to God in the sense that we're valuable to us and, and he died for us. But let's all the time remember we're specks of dust with an attitude problem. And the moment we think that we're something, you know, we're, we're the big disciple, you know, we're the, we're the big cheese. You know, I, I prophesied last week. <laughs> Well, fine, so what? That was a gift of the Holy Spirit. That was by grace. Whatever it is, it's by grace. So therefore, any time we think we're something, pride, deceiving ourselves, an inflated uh, kind of idea of our own importance and, and you know, where the Bible tells us to, to, to put other people before us. Deception is getting in there when, when we're like that. Uh, back to James. Chapter 1, here's another way we deceive ourselves. Um, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now then, the situation you got there is, um, you know, sort of like someone, well, I mean, like we, we get teaching, but we, we believe it. We say, isn't that great, but we don't act on it. Now, picture, I mean, why do you look in a mirror? part to admire yourself, obviously, but why do you look in the mirror? Well, to make sure that, 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 that all is present and correct, right? So, I mean, you know, hair, tidy, or, or whatever. Now, what we got here, someone looks in the mirror, and they see a whacking great big spot on the end of their nose, right? They think, oh, I must do something about that spot. And they go away, they do nothing. They just forget it's there. And the only time they realise that there's a blemish there is when they look in the mirror. They don't go away and do anything about it. Or someone who looks in the mirror and he realises that there's, a, you know, sort of like, you know, bits of dinner all over his face. 
And he's, oh, I must, must, must wash my face before I go out, and then ends up going out without washing his face. Looking in the mirror and making the mental note, yes, this is right, here's something that needs doing, but then going away and not doing it. James says, look, that is to deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself like that. What the Bible says, do it. Don't just believe it, do it. Otherwise, you're deceiving yourself. And then back into Galatians. In chapter 6. And in verse 7, Paul says, do not be deceived. So again, don't deceive yourself. He says, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to, his, to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And Paul says, don't kid yourself. You know, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. You can kid yourself you won't, but you will. It's as simple as that. And so therefore, can you see that in the Bible, we have the warnings in kind of, it comes down in three layers. Beware, because Satan and the demons are trying to deceive you all the time to lead you into deception. And sometimes that can be direct, just on your mind, just you and Satan, as it were. That's one layer. Beware. Right? Peter says, look, Satan's roaming around like a roaring lion, looking whom he may devour. The second layer is that Satan also seeks to deceive us through other people. So we have to beware there particularly fine-sounding philosophy and people with all the intellectual arguments. Not that there's anything wrong with intellectual arguments per se, but don't be taken in just by something that is fine-sounding. That's the point. So, there's a danger of being deceived. Satan, he attacks our mind directly, just him and us, but he attacks us through the ideas and things that get said by other people as well false teaching, getting into the church, blah, blah, blah. So we have to watch for that too. But the third level, and the real heart of the matter, is that the reason that this deception business is so dangerous is because we deceive ourselves. It's not just that Satan's trying to deceive us, or that Satan's trying to deceive us through other people even. The problem is we deceive ourselves. So we're already doing Satan's work for him. Because there are things about ourselves that we'd rather not believe, and so we don't, even though they're true. There are other things about ourselves often that aren't true, but we want to believe them, so we do. We're already half doing Satan's work for him. So therefore, we've got to realise that the real core of this problem is we have deceitful hearts. We deceive ourselves. And that is what should make us all the time really relying on the Lord and what we saw earlier, Israel, they, they did not inquire of the Lord. This should make us inquire of the Lord very seriously in a, a, an, an ongoing way in regards to whatever. So what I want to do now is to say, right, okay, so we've got to say, so what is our protection now? We've seen the dangers, we've seen just how susceptible we are to it. I mean, think of it, just say, you know, I mean, all these... Uh, you know, sort of like breakthroughs in genetics and things like that. And, and the day's going to come when 
you know, sort of like when you're a baby, you'll have a blood test and they'll know all the diseases that you are prone to, right? But let's say that you, you, you know it's been proven to you, the doctors have done a blood test and they say you are incredibly susceptible to heart problems. What are you going to do about it? Well, you've then got to find out, okay, what are the main things that cause heart problems? These are the things I've really got to avoid because I'm prone to heart disease. So you'd really have to avoid sloth. You know, you've got to make sure that you exercise. You've got to avoid fat, things like that, a good you know, kind of balanced diet. So the point is, you know what you're prone to, therefore you find out how you combat it. So we've seen what we're prone to, we're prone to deception. And for all reasons, because of our pride and our independence and blah, blah, blah. So now we've got to say, right, we know that we're prone to this particular disease, deception. So what is the best, how do we live in such a way as to minimise the risks of it ever actually happening? Well, three things. Number one, go to Romans. Romans 12. Now we're seeing the antidote. Or it's not just the antidote, it's, it's prevention. It's the antidote when you've been deceived, but this is how you prevent yourself being deceived if you haven't been deceived yet, as it were. Now then, Romans 12, read verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is, this is kind of like a zombie picture here. This is living dead. Because normally when something goes on the altar, that's right, it's dead, it's gone. You know, I mean, the lamb that goes on, the, it's dead. There's no more life in it. Here, what Paul's saying, well, you're still alive, but you're going to be living sacrifices. You're going to be dead man walking, as that film was that was on last year. It says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, can you see the, the antidote towards being deceived? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, because it's our thoughts that Satan gets into that deceive us. And he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Not Satan's will, not how he's trying to deceive me, but what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So here's the first thing. How do we have our reminds nude? How can we be in the position where we can test and approve what God's will is? There's, there's a marvellous you know, kind of protection against being deceived. Well, he says, then you will be able to. What's gone before? Committing yourself to God, um, living sacrifices, and not being conformed anymore to the pattern of this world. There's the condition. Thoroughgoing, ongoing discipleship. Submission to the Lord. That's number one. Submission to the Lord. Because nothing less than submission to the Lord is going to keep our evil hearts and our deceptive hearts in check. So that's number one. Submission to the Lord being a living sacrifice. Go to James.
chapter 4. Terry lost James. Ah, oh, there he is. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now this really is one of the, the verses that um, perhaps more than any others I've heard quoted out of context. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's what Christians are told. Resist the devil. When Satan comes against you, resist him, then he'll have to flee. That is not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of your Bible is submit yourselves to God. And if you are submitted to God, then if you resist Satan, he'll flee. Because authority over Satan, and we're going to see this more next time, is delegated authority. You have actual working authority over Satan to the extent that God has actual working authority over you. You see, so therefore submit yourselves to God, then resist the devil and he will flee far from you. And then uh, go to, to 1 Peter. One Peter five and verse eight and nine. He says, be self-controlled and alert your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And the context of these verses, and I'll go back a couple of verses, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So can you see there is the first, um, you know, sort of uh, segment or the, the first thing that has to be in place in order for us to have ongoing protection against deception. And it's submission to God. Right, okay, so the second thing, go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And find verse 3. Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So that's battling deception, battle for the mind, Satan coming in, deceiving us in our thinking. And there Paul saying the weapons of our warfare, they're not worldly. Not talking guns or, or, or sabres or you know anything like that, tanks and, and aircraft. No, they're spiritual weapons. And now if you go over to Ephesians chapter 6, And in verse 10, we, we, we have the section about the armour of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Wiles is, is the best word there. Deceptive schemes, that's what the Greek word means. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the whole armour of God, that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So, what does this, these weapons of our warfare boil down to? Prayer and faith. We're back to Israel didn't inquire of the Lord and so they got deceived by the Hivites. Prayer and faith. So we've seen submission to God. Now we're seeing prayer and faith. And then, number three. Find Colossians, chapter two. We've already seen this verse, but we're going to read it again now. Colossians two, verse four. He says, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Well, what's he telling them? He's telling them the Word of God. Go back to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 10 and verse 5. Again, we saw this just now. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Where does the knowledge of God come from? It comes from the Word of God. And in Ephesians 6 that we just saw, we saw that there was the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And indeed faith comes by the Word of God. And so what we see here is that our ongoing protection against the ongoing danger of being deceived in whatever way is one, submission to God, two, prayer and faith, and three, the Word of God. Now what I want to do in, in winding up is, is to, to just have a look at some of the deceptions. There can be all kinds of things. You know, I mean, some can be extremely personal. You know, you know, God has called me to go and be an apostle to Wales, and you know, off off you go. Regardless, of, you know, get in my head, or I'm going to be a this, that, and the other for the Lord, and off you go. <laughs> you know, sort of like you know, no no testing it through the body of Christ, no looking at it and getting people to pray. But you know, it can work like that. You know, sort of like some great calling that you think you've. Be very, it can be a million things. What I want to do is to look at, you know, some of the things that, um, you know, sort of like are more objective. But if you stay in 2 Corinthians and go back to, to chapter 3, I just want to um, home in on a, a verse which in some ways you can call the mother of all deceptions in some ways. S certainly with Christians being deceived. This verse comes up again and again 
and uh, so it would be good for us to actually see what it means as opposed to what it doesn't mean. And in 2 Corinthians 3, and um, start reading from verse 4, uh, he says, Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now this verse I find out, uh, you know, I found has come up again and again being quoted by Christians who are in various ways going against the Word of God. Regardless of what the Word of God says about certain things, they're going against it. And here, what they say is that they're going with the Spirit rather than the letter which kills. And what they do is, they set up almost as if there's a contradiction between the Holy Spirit leading into life and the letter of the Bible killing. You know, so therefore, regardless of what the Bible says, you know, well, you know, in this instance, it is okay for me to not submit to my husband, uh, you know, sort of like a woman once told me, because the Holy Spirit was leading her not to submit to him. You quote the Word of God, you get told you're killing me with the Word of God. Can you see what I mean? This verse often is a get-out clause. And they say, look, the letter kills. So going, you know, like, like by what the, the New Testament teaches in, in, in its fine details will kill you. Now, what's the context? The context here, if you were to read the whole of the chapter, is that Paul is comparing the New Covenant to the Old Covenant. And the letter that kills was the, 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 the Ten Commandments in the Tablets of Stone. And Paul's comparing the New Covenant with the Old Covenant. Now we know from Paul the law brought death. That's what Paul's talking about. It's when people try to say, look, you know, sort of like, you know, the Bible says that women shouldn't be elders. No, no, that, that's the letter killing. The, the Spirit is leading in a different way today. They, they're just hooking this totally out of context. And failing to see the comparison here is not between the leading of the Spirit and the Word of God. The Holy Spirit never leads against the Word of God. The Word of God is how we find out if something is the Holy Spirit leading us. All right. The comparison is between the New Covenant, which brings life, and the Old Covenant, the Law, the Law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, which brought death. So, but, but that verse is like a tree on which a, th a thousand branches of deception grow. Can you see, because at the end of the day, if, if, if you're happy to say, hook verses like this out of context and say, well, I'm not going with the letter, that's killing me, you know, I'm going with the spirit. Or sort of, like, I know, I know that she's not a Christian, but I, I know it's right in the law for me to marry her. The spirit is leading me. You say, no, no, the Bible says, no, that's the letter that kills. <laughs> you, you see, that it's hooking verses like this totally out of context. But as soon as people accept that the Holy Spirit can lead one way and the Bible another, you're dead. You're dead in the water. Because at the end of the day, Satan can, you know, play you like a violin, obviously. So, um, you know, sort of like, you know, that verse, as it were, is the sort of thing that Christians, you know, sort of say. And uh, it, it, it kind of becomes the tree on which you can hang a thousand branches of different deceptions. But, um, but I want to give you some other you know, examples of definite deceptions that people get into. And, uh, and remember that each 
deception usually has just enough biblical language in it to make it seem okay. Remember the Gibeonites, what did they do? They put old clothes on. They got some manky food. They dressed it up so it looked genuine. You see, it wouldn't have been any good them going to Joshua if they were dressed up just like Hivites would be dressed, you know, with sort of like sandwiches that were made this morning. That wouldn't really have passed muster. They had to dress it up. Well, in the same way, all deception, you'll find that it's dressed up in enough biblical language to sound good, but often it isn't. Let me give you some examples. You know, these are kind of like, um, you know, important ones because they come up. The, the whole thing in the church today, modern psychology and all this, this, this inner healing, this, uh, you know, kind of like retroactive counselling, uh, you know, this sort of like going back into your childhood and all this sort of stuff. Um, most of it is down to Freud and Jung. It's, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the Bible, you know, but a lot of modern psychology, regardless of, of how spurious it actually is, if you understand what it's saying, I mean, it completely goes against the Word of God. But what happens is it gets dressed up in Christian language. Christians dress it up in Christian language. Um, the fact that Jung himself used Christian language, he wasn't a Christian, but the fact that he used the language of Christianity has rather made a lot of Christians think that Jung was a Christian. He wasn't a Christian at all, any more than Freud was. Just that Freud didn't use the language of Christianity, Jung did. Uh, Jung was actually into the occult in various ways. And, uh, you know, but it's, it's an example of how deception comes in the church. And so, you know, many, you know, Christians, they, they're using the techniques developed by modern depth psychology. And, and these techniques go against the Bible but they're using them in the saying that the Holy Spirit is leading us. Forget the fact it doesn't square up with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is leading us. And you, you Christianise it. You, you dress it up in Christian language. And, uh, you know, I mean, today we get this cult of self-esteem today, isn't it? You know, loving ourselves. The only thing that matters is loving ourselves and affirming ourselves and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, I mean, obviously we don't want to go around with a bad self-image. God loves us. We're valuable to him. But on the other hand, the Bible says that our problem isn't that we don't love ourselves enough. Our problem is that we don't love other people or God as much as we love ourselves. We're not short on self-love. It's coming out of our ears. We need to have love for God and others before ourselves. And uh, so much counselling today on the Christian scene. Yeah, you bung in the biblical language, you hook out a few verses and this, that and the other, but often it's no more than, than you know, modern, in-depth psychology, which is only 70-odd years old anyway. You know, I mean, certainly the New Testament church wouldn't have known what you were talking about. They did okay without it. I think they did better without it than we do with it. Therefore, we don't need it. It, it, it doesn't pass muster with the Word of God. Evolutionary theory. You know, I, I mean, what, you know, I mean, read, read evolution as atheists believe it. And, well, I mean, yes, it's a bit daft, isn't it? But then when you get evolution, oh, well, God did it through evolution, didn't he? So you dress it up a bit. You then try and make Genesis 1 to 7 fit in with evolutionary theory. Oh, no, it's not, it's not days. No, no, not, not days. 
it's millions of years. Alright. Well fine, how do you fit in the development of those days? They don't go along with evolutionary theory. You know, I mean how do you account that, you know, sort of like, you know, the stars and that were created after planet Earth? I mean it doesn't it creates more problems you know, to sort of, you know, say that God did it through evolution. Uh, again, deception gets in. And we find that, that bit by bit we're negotiating the word of God away to the world and its own theories and deceptive philosophies. All the things that the Bible tells us not to be deceived by. Well, you know, Freudian psychology, Jungian psychology, evolutionary theory. I mean, if these things are not the deceptive philosophy that we're to make sure we don't get caught by, I'd like to know what is the deceptive philosophy that we're not meant to get caught by. I mean, by and large, for so many Christians, I mean, yeah, they, they would say that out-and-out out atheism is a lie and they wouldn't get caught by that, but anything below out-and-out out atheism seems to be okay nowadays. You know, swallow it hook, line and sinker. It's absolutely crazy. Other examples, well, I've already, you know, kind of like mentioned them, but marrying unbelievers. But the Lord's leading me to marry this unbeliever. No, he's not. And you deceive yourselves to think he is. You see, the Bible makes it quite clear that when it comes to marriage, you can marry only in the Lord. Period. Simple as that. But people are led. Well, they are led. But they're not led by the Holy Spirit. Deceiving spirits, they've been deceived. It's not the Lord. A hot water this one, but women elders. Well, what the Bible says, the Spirit is leading us to say to have women elders. The idea that, that, that the man is the head of the household and that wives ought to submit to their husbands. Obviously, this means that the husband has got to make sure that he's loving his wife and, you know, sort of not doing a big boss thing, obviously. But the fact that, you know, the whole ballot, the whole setup, the mechanics of marriage, we're negotiating them away. No, wives don't have to submit to their husbands anymore. Well, the Bible says they do, for instance. I mean, that's as daft as saying that husbands don't have to love their wives anymore. Of course they have to love their wives. Why? Because the Bible says so. I mean, you know, again, if it goes against the word of God, it's not the Lord. Um, one that, that, that does get me a bit, um, I mean this is controversial, but people who are led into the priesthood. The Holy Spirit does not lead people into a, a, a kind of a clerical priesthood which goes completely against what the Bible says. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, sort of like, you know, knock on your local vicar's door and challenge him over this. And even when you, you know, like meet believers in churches that are based on priestcraft. I mean, it's fine. I'm not saying make it an issue of contention, anything like that at all. Leave it will be. Just get on having fellowship. But can you see, this is, this is where deception comes in. You know, and that we've got to make sure that, that things tie up with the word of God before we, we actually accept them. Go to 1 Thessalonians. We're coming to the end now. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5 and verse 21. 
and this this is you know sort of like you know one of the verses that oh we got to hang on to it 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21 test everything as Robert Lee would have said test it test it test everything hold on to the good avoid every kind of evil now how do we test things by the word of God and Paul says test everything there is nothing that should escape this test of making sure that it doesn't go against the word of God because as we're seeing tonight one of Satan's prime prongs of his attack is deception yeah temptation he wants us to sin but even while he's doing that in the front door quite blatantly he's slipping in the back door trying to deceive us and so we've seen that our protection is threefold submission to the Lord prayerfulness and everything being tested by the Word of God now if we hold those things in place in the context of the safety of our brothers and sisters and the body the wider body then we're going to be as safe as we can be doesn't mean we'll never get got but it means that we're safe from really bad stuff that is going to lead us astray in in really serious ways and then just the last point eventually the Gibeonites all right these guys they, they should have been destroyed but all right you know Israel was tricked by them but what they did is they became general servants of the Israelites uh, and you know they did the dog's body you know like you know the train drivers and you know that sort of stuff and particularly in regards to the tabernacle like tending the altars and stuff like that so the point is they actually ended up being a blessing to Israel and a blessing to the Lord as well now that is Romans 8.28 all things work together for good so even if we have been deceived as long as we put it right when we realise we put it right we get back into the truth even that deception like the Gibeonites the Hivites is going to work out to our eventual blessing so let's not think that you know deception sort of ah oh, deception as if it's something such a biggie that there's no escape from it of course there's escape from it if we realize that satan's deceived us about something just acknowledge it put it right and get back on the straight and narrow and we will find that it actually works together for our own good so there you have it the danger of you know deception a, a vital part aspect of spiritual warfare and the next time as we conclude this this series we'll we'll see that 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 cosmic pecking order and uh, how it changed when Jesus died and fascinating it is as well